Hi, and welcome to the Bureau Podcast, your new home for compelling, trustworthy, and independent investigative journalism. The Bureau.News is the new home of Canada's finest independent investigative journalist, Sam Cooper, and features exclusive breaking stories and analysis of domestic and international stories you simply cannot find anywhere else. You'll definitely want to subscribe to the Bureau.News on Substack, where Sam Cooper is hanging his Scooper Cooper hat these days. I'm John McComb, the host of the Bureau podcast, and I catch up with Sam regularly to discuss his latest investigations. Everything from money laundering to China's attempts to surveil and intimidate Canada's Chinese community to issues of national security. On today's Bureau podcast, if you thought Canada's money laundering problems had gone away because bettors weren't allowed to dump hockey bags of cash into B.C. casinos anymore, you'd be sadly mistaken. We'll tell you about a change in tactics that Canada's financial watchdog has uncovered. But first of all, Sam, you've been a busy guy this last week with a blockbuster story revealing the Chinese communist regime's efforts to not just influence, but control Chinese media in this country, as well as trying to get cozy with some in the mainstream media in Canada. What's up? That's right, John. Well, really, this was, uh, I feel, a major advance in this ongoing Chinese foreign interference and election interference story. We've known those that follow uh, media and China's influence operations in Canada closely for a while that there certainly were efforts to uh, influence many of the Chinese diaspora media outlets. But I got my uh, eyes on four independent sets of national security records that really say that it's a systematic level of control from the Chinese Communist Party. They've essentially completely taken over all Chinese language media outlets in Canada. That goes from print to online to broadcasters. And this is all focused according to the new records that I reviewed on at the highest level election interference. So this is why I say this is the new leg of an investigation in the election interference story showing that as I reported, and you know, John, uh, people's minds were a little bit blown by the new revelations that Chinese diplomats were clandestinely funding election interference in 2019 and 2021. These allegations are media is a big part of that funding apparatus. And it goes to the level, according to documents and sources, that Chinese consulate officials are rounding up the top editors, journalists in Chinese language media and telling them what candidates need to be supported. That's one of the bombshell revelations in the story that really adds new weight and color to the allegations we know about secreting funds into election interference. Well, okay, let me stop you there because you've painted with a pretty broad brush there. So are we to understand it that all Chinese media in Canada is somehow being compromised, not only influenced, but controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, or its proxies. Unfortunately, that's the situation that comes both from my interviews with some unidentified Chinese language journalists who cannot be named due to fears for their safety and their family, 
And indeed, one former editor, a high-level editor, went on the record to support that intelligence. And this comes, John, from an, an October 2022 CSIS Canadian Eyes Only record that I reviewed. It speaks to China's uh, wide election interference in Ontario and British Columbia at all levels of government supporting candidates and the ways they do it. But what is new in this uh, reporting and this story, John, is that the document says that election interference is supported by China's control of media entities in Canada. And this, uh, the context of that assertion from CSIS is that there has been, quote, a takeover for decades in Canada of Chinese language media and this is uh, due to several factors, one being, as the document says, President Xi Jinping's increasing funding of infiltration operations in media worldwide. This is focused on Canada. We're talking about Canada. Another big factor here is that the makeup of uh, diaspora communities has changed pretty dramatically over the past decades. We used to have, you know, a, a big balance between uh, Taiwanese, Hong Kong immigrants, mainland China. In recent years, according to this CSIS document, as the proportion of mainland China immigrants rises, China's efforts through their intelligence arms in Canada to influence through media and other means that population has grown. And this is why, to come to your direct question, yes, there has been essentially a complete takeover of Chinese language media in Canada. What are the implications of this? This is shocking, but the point of the story here is they use media and control media associations to uh, make sure that reporting in these outlets is pro-Beijing and to the point of the story, to support the candidates that China wants elected in Canadian governments. That goes from municipal to provincial and most importantly, federal. Your story also says that, quote unquote, mainstream media outlets have been at least approached or have been, let's say, the Chinese have tried to woo them. Do we know how successful they've been in that effort? Well, there are a couple of intelligence revelations that, uh, again, shocked me and never before reported. So, uh, again, sourcing from multiple sets of documents, they spoke to Beijing's efforts, not just in Canada, but internationally, but we're talking about Canada infusing massive investments into attempting to influence, quote, mainstream media. And we're talking about big Canadian media corporations here. A very specific allegation is in British Columbia, CSIS learned around 2015, the Vancouver Chinese consulate came up with a strategy to co-opt BC TV stations and to make them pro-Beijing let me stop right there. The stations are not named, but the natures of the, the allegations from CSIS's investigation, which were reported up to a national security review body of parliamentarians that report to Prime Minister Trudeau. Again, they say that this plan from the Vancouver Chinese consulate was to cultivate key media managers, editors, high-ranking managers so that they would exert influence on those individuals and by extension their media outlets they were offering benefits allegedly john you know exclusive invites providing news directly to these what should be purportedly you know within canada's system independent media so the allegations i just want to underline it these are allegations that diplomats in Canada that we already know, as I've reported, are uh, alleged to be involved in secretly funding candidates in Canada. 
they are also allegedly cultivating high-ranking media managers in mainstream media with efforts to control their reporting. Okay, so do we know whether any of those efforts, uh, in terms of the mainstream media, were successful? There's a few points there. Uh, I would have liked to have uh, more information in terms of detailed allegations and whether there was success. The documents don't say whether these operations were successful per se. What they do is point towards a very specific case. You'll remember the reporting around the Mun Wanzhou case, whether she would be extradited per rule of law to the United States or not. So there was a lot of just high level international interest in that story. The allegations I read in a January 2022 Privy Council Office document say that under the broad reporting about China's deep interference against many Canadian institutions, it says mainstream Canadian media is used by China. It points to the Mun Wanzhou case and it points to press conferences from then Canadian Ambassador John McCallum. It says, as we know, Mr. McCallum was forced to resign in the political furor surrounding his comments. A Chinese consulate official reached out to an unnamed Canadian mainstream media reporter and uh, attempted to send information that Mr. McCallum was viewed very positively by the Chinese Canadian community. So appearing from what I read of the documents to influence reporting about McCallum and his press conferences and uh, his views on the Mun Wanzhou case, which, as you know, were very aligned with Beijing's views. That was that uh, Mun Wanzhou would be it, uh, illegal to detain her and she should yeah. be returned to China. But those kinds of representations are made to newsrooms all the time, right? I mean, as you know, you've worked in many newsrooms where all kinds of different people are trying to get their thing, their point of view, their agenda on the air, but obviously not all of it makes it because there are editors, there are people in the in the hierarchy, in the chain of command who say, wait a minute, I'm not going to run this. This is obvious that it's propaganda. So I, I'm just curious about that because I don't remember in my days on the air at CKNW here in Vancouver, you know, having to field that sort of approach, shall we say, from a Chinese representative. And if I had, I would tell them to screw off, basically. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, we could talk a lot about how uh, you, I, other people that have reached a a good level of professionalism in in media get invites to various embassies of various governments that you know are most of them hopefully are democratic and sometimes you know you you might even get asked to attend a, a press conference with uh, the Chinese consulate. But the key here is that, well, these documents that I have reported on do not lay out details about clandestine offers, clandestine benefits. They do contain the words that these are, quote, aggressive, sophisticated, persistent and pervasive clandestine Chinese efforts to influence Canadian media. So we need to unpack that a little bit. You know, clandestine and covert are words that when an intelligence agency uses them, we can strongly understand that they have evidence underlying inappropriate activity that doesn't pass, you know, the transparency test. Yeah. I'm going to jump a little bit into sort of my external work regarding some of my book reporting. I came across uh, people in media in British Columbia that when I put together their words and actions with what I believed were um, 
let's just call them initiatives very connected to the Chinese state. I judged on myself, it was fair to assume that they were under some influence. And I talked to a person that was cited in this October 2022 CSIS document, not named. His name is Victor Ho, a former high-level Vancouver-based editor. And I ran this intelligence by him. And he said, it's absolutely correct that China is trying to influence the top Chinese editing teams in Canada to gain intervention in elections. And he added, he too understands that, you know, secret benefits are occurring, threats are occurring against journalists. But in his view, it goes even higher level than that. He says this takeover of Chinese language media in Canada has been executed through changing ownership of media companies, mostly in Hong Kong. And how does that happen? China, the Communist Party offers business benefits in mainland China to these media barons. And that, in Mr. Ho, Victor Ho's words, is how China holds its ransom over people with control in media. I think we need to make it clear as well that this is going on in countries around the world. It's in Canada, of course, because as we've talked about in earlier podcasts, because of the lack of, of legislation and regulation and control, this country remains a sitting duck, as I, I call it. But, but it's happened in Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Americans, it, it, all over the world. China is trying to assert its dominance and trying to influence countries to, number one, degrade democracy, and number two, to try to convince people that the Chinese communist way of doing business is the, the best way uh, forward, not only for China, but for countries all around the world. And I think this is where people need to pay, sit up and pay attention to this, because this isn't just about people you know, some diplomat trying to take a, a reporter to lunch to try to persuade him. As you've said, this is a big time, serious, worldwide effort that I don't think in Canada we've paid anywhere near amount of the attention that it needs and it deserves. That's my soliloquy for this podcast. I'll be back on Thursday. <laughs> Well, I was listening with uh, my head nodding because there's two or three points in there that, well, I agree with everything you said, and I think I can underline both in my research and the reporting here. One, yes, my information from these documents is, let's just focus on the, the efforts to capture mainstream media around the world. My documents say that this is massive infusions of money worldwide and that Beijing has gone from a defensive strategy where it used to just boot out foreign reporters that it didn't like. And of course, total censorship control domestically over mainland China media. They've gone on the offensive in recent years. This is all connected again to Xi Jinping ramping up his, as we've reported, United Front Work Department international influence machine, funded it to the to the T and just trying to influence worldwide media giants, uh, the biggest newspapers, the biggest broadcasters to take a positive view of the regime's activities. So where does Canada come into that? Are we worse or, or better than any of the other nations? My information, okay, let's go to the CSIS quote that I read for this was that CSIS assesses Canadian mainstream media has been heavily targeted in this global high level, let's call it effort to influence the biggest broadcasters and newspapers. 
So again, do I have many details to unpack on exactly which uh, August headline producers have been targeted in Canada? I don't right now. I've got some ideas. I've got some things I'm working on. But I do think that jumping to is Canada doing enough? No, we're not. As my story points out, Victor Ho, this uh, former Vancouver-based editor that has been a, a great source for myself and has testified in Ottawa that Canada should have a foreign agent registry because that would compel pro-Beijing media outlets that are getting funded under the table to register as foreign agents. Then we would know how much money is going into outlets in Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal to have secretly have reporters boost the prospects of certain candidates. We'd have some idea if they had to register they register in Australia. They register in the United States. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been advised, uh, essentially, by the testimony of Victor Ho and others like Kenny Chu. Uh, we've heard any amount of testimony now in Ottawa that Canada needs a foreign agent registry to deal with secret agents and secret media agents. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has done nothing. So there's your answer. We have a big problem and we have a bigger problem than others because we don't have the laws in place. Well, and one of the other reasons we have a big problem, I was reading that Canada has a disproportionately high number of Chinese government officials working in this country. I think it was in the range of 170 or so. In fact, there are more Chinese officials working in Ottawa and consulates across the country as there are in countries like uh, the United Kingdom or Australia. You mentioned it earlier that the influx of Chinese immigrants has brought the Chinese population in Canada, has raised it to the extent that Beijing is putting a lot of effort and a lot of people into this country to keep an eye on the diaspora, the Chinese community in Canada. I would agree with that 100%. And my sources of information that, that say it's not just a extrapolation to say that China's overproportionate of uh, diplomats in Canada suggests anything nefarious. It is evidence coming from my confidential law enforcement sources. It's evidence coming from Chinese, Canadian, Hong Kong, Canadian community sources, some of them that can be named, some that can't, who say they know that many of these diplomats are more than that. They're secret Ministry of State Security or secret police Ministry of Public Security agents or uh, people that are handling proxies in the community to do the work of those security agencies. We have community sources that say they believe hundreds of secret agents run out of these Chinese consulates and these diplomats that are really spies have to be in those consulates to handle all the agents. But I'll talk about, a, let's just say, a well-informed person that knows of China's fox hunt activities in Canada years ago told me that the Ministry of State Security and the Ministry of Public Security have a number of undercover operatives in Ottawa in the consulate in Vancouver, in the consulate in Toronto, and they are working secretly to go after the Chinese Canadian community. So let's go to another source, Charles Burton, as you know, someone, an expert we both talked to. And by the way, someone that has openly said that he was under unusual circumstances, interviewed by the Ministry of State Security. He believes that many, many dozens or more secret operatives out of our mission, Chinese missions in Canada. So I'm going from 
expert to community sources to confidential people aware of RCMP investigations over the years to tell you that what you just said here, that there's a lot of unknown agents in Canada more proportionately than the United States or Australia from China, I believe is true. And how is it different, though, than the United States or the CIA planting, you know, he's the representative for uh, agriculture and growing fruit officially, but unofficially he is the spy who's looking for, you know, whatever information. This has gone on forever. So what is different, do you think, or what is alarming about the idea that, yeah, China has spies in Canada, but I'm sure a lot of other countries do as well. The U.S., the CIA, they have spies everywhere. Shrug your shoulders and say, well, what's the big deal? You know, I agree with you. Everyone does spy on everyone. Canada, less so than other nations. We're Dudley do right in this mix, John. Like we, we follow all the rules and, uh, and, and yes, and we, other... we're, we're, we're the sitting ducks who paddle very quietly. We do, except for the people that are compromised by their states and uh, are in our government and <laughs> are are doing everything that the, that these more nefarious states do, and we don't know about it yet. But look, um, here's the difference in my view and my own personal knowledge, John. Uh, these states who are our intelligence allies are not systematically using gangsters to intimidate, uh, surveil, launder money, attempt to corrupt officials in Canada. If anyone can show me evidence that the CIA is using the Hells Angels or let's say, I don't know, <laughs> someone to corrupt a Canadian official, I'll take my words back. However, John, I know that the Chinese state is using, not even using, is involved in high level organized crime activity to fulfill a number of different objectives of the Chinese Communist Party in Canada. And it's beyond unacceptable. If people, this is why I've said, I think maybe even twice in our first two podcasts, I've said sometimes I've become troubled with how much I've found out about how nefarious China's violent methods in Canada are. And that's the difference. You have uh, very nicely opened up uh, a pathway to our next story, the story that you wrote this past week regarding FinTrack. And you, of course, uh, were at the very, very front of the pack when it came to uh, uncovering and investigating money laundering in BC casinos and the hockey bags full of money and, and all of the nefarious activities that were taking place there. Your reporting prompted the B.C. government to call a commission of inquiry to look into that. And people thought, well, gee, the money laundering situation in the casinos has been taken care of. Everything is cool. Well, no, because now we're finding out that rather than just going away, the people who launder money are using other methods. They're using the banks. They're using lawyers. They're using various methods to get money into this country to launder money. Talk about what uh, Fintrack has had to say. That's right, John. Uh, it was for me. It was good to see that at a just a high level, a quantitative level, Fintrack has come out with a new report, which essentially again confirms things I've been looking at for the past few years. That we started this Vancouver model. We've talked about it so many times. Was about these hockey bags of cash uh, going into casinos, but when 
BC's government crackdown, I already knew that there were spikes in Ontario casinos where I understood that the very same organized crime networks were very quickly adapting. And people often ask me, well, now Premier David Eby says that money laundering has been reduced by a factor of 100, this cash in BC casinos. Is this problem solved? Of course it wasn't because did we see fentanyl deaths going down at all? No, we didn't. That fentanyl, these drugs are flowing into Canada. The cash is being collected. The cryptocurrency is moving around. And what this new FinTrack report shows very neatly, as we know, casinos shut down during COVID-19. Casinos are used so easily by organized crime based in China and Hong Kong, they couldn't use those venues. So the FinTrack report says their studies found that suddenly wire transfers coming in from entities in Hong Kong and mainland China ramped up. These are uh, transfers that are going directly into bank accounts in Canada. And what they judged is that the uh, transnational organized crime groups behind the Vancouver model had very quickly diversified their money laundering methods at scale across Canada. And so how does it work? These wire transfers are coming from currency exchanges, essentially, notably in Hong Kong, as the FinTrack report says. They're coming into bank accounts that are owned by members of the diaspora community in Canada, but they're not their bank accounts. They're just nominally, their name is on it, but they're called a, a quote, money mule or a straw buyer. And as soon as these wire transfers from Hong Kong come in, the bank accounts are drained by these operatives of underground banks who are then making bank drafts and paying them into at scale law firms, at scale property developers. So to boil it all down, what I took out of this new report is, as you know, I've been looking at the ways money is laundered into condos and residences in Vancouver for years. But I always knew that it wasn't just, you know, one-off home transfers here and there. It wasn't just private lenders taking out these crazy private lender mortgage liens against homes and like taking someone's home if they couldn't pay back a $500,000 hockey bag of cash gambling loan. No, property developers in China and Canada are being directly funded by transfers from Hong Kong. Essentially, this Vancouver model is working at a higher level and infiltrating banks and property development at a higher level than anyone had uh, openly said or quantified before is what I'm taking from FinTrack's report. Well, I think the interesting part is, of course, we have known and, and have debated and uh, yelled about you know, offshore money going into, in particular, Vancouver and Toronto real estate and jacking up prices uh, just beyond belief. But what I found interesting about the FinTrack report is that it isn't just somebody going in and buying a handful of condos in a particular project. Now that laundered money is being provided directly to developers to develop large tracts of whether they be homes or condo buildings or townhouses or whatever they happen to be. So forget about somebody buying an individual home. Now, evidently, it's so big and so broad that uh, entire developments are being financed or are at least tainted somehow by this laundered money. That's exactly it. And, you know, for me personally, as a researcher, I had an idea that developments in Vancouver and Toronto were being funded uh, in obscure ways. 
and people involved in the transactions I knew to be involved in organized crime or I knew to have been on the run uh, as corrupt officials or so-called white gloves for corrupt officials in China. Therefore, their money couldn't be legitimate. There were huge questions around it. How was it getting into Canada? And how were they developing these buildings worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And yet, what was the method of those funds coming in? It had to be more than 10 hockey bags of cash at the River Rock Casino. And what this FinTrack report fills in is they have printed a list of indicators for Canadian bankers, lawyers, realtors, and said, if you have transfers coming in from Hong Kong that say for mortgage payment for X building, but the person who has the bank account that that came in to list their occupation as student, housewife, or unemployed. Or on the other hand, they may just brazenly list their occupation as owner of a real estate corporation. These are the indications that, as you say, whole scale developments, hundreds of millions, I believe developments approaching a billion dollars, one-offs, people involved in organized crime are developing them with wire transfers from Hong Kong. So why aren't the banks, why aren't lawyers, why isn't the real estate industry, why are are they so unaware of this? Because we went through this a few years back, and you'll remember in BC at least, the real estate industry was kind of overhauled because there was so much laxity around where money was coming from. From what FinTrack is saying, it's the same old thing all over again, just on a much larger scale. So is this money being brought in wittingly or unwittingly? Are, are lawyers being hoodwinked or are they in on this? Well, there's there, there's so many thoughts that pop up in my mind to that question because this is this is book 1.5 here uh, after willful blindness. But but my quick thoughts are I've I've thought and said before the BC casinos ultimately had to pay the price because the activity was so brazen and John, it was on video, (laughs) you know, evidence. I remember. Right? Hockey bags of cash, furtive unloading of bales of cash, 20s, drug money into uh, these cash cages. No one could deny it. You know, at a simple level, you know, the people knew what was going on after those videos came out. And beyond that, just casinos, uh, there's so much more going on with the connectivity of organized crime that it just had to be exposed. But as we've been talking about, you know, once you put a wall in place in some of those casinos, that cash from fentanyl, heroin, cocaine worldwide coming into Vancouver and Toronto, it still was piling up. It had to be moved in other ways. And so I don't believe that people in, in law offices and banks are ignorant, willfully blind. Some of them, I believe some of them are corrupted and complicit, especially lawyers. And this goes back to a story we talked about before. Kim Marsh, the the private investigator, former Mountie that knows this world so well and has gotten into some trouble for going after what he thought maybe in a good way were uh, you know people with absconded funds from China. He said he knows that for years, RCMP has not targeted lawyers and banks, but RCMP knows that people in those industries, real estate even more so, are directly involved um, in this dirty activity. For me, this new FinTrack report 
pulls together a lot of threads that I knew about, calculations that I was making, and it's the most clear picture yet that Vancouver and Toronto very significantly are funded by mystery money from China and Hong Kong. And I've done a little bit of, you know, guesstimate work on how big could this be in Vancouver? We're talking 10, 20, up to $30 billion per year. You know, what I've gathered from sources should be the amount of money that's going into BC's property market from originated in China and Hong Kong. How much of that is flowing through underground banks? That is, it doesn't necessarily have to be organized crime money, but it's facilitated by these networks, which are organized crime. Through underground banking, I believe very significant amounts of, uh, I would not be shy about saying, you know, $10 billion flowing through more or less underground channels into Vancouver's BC's property market annually is a pretty safe estimate in my books. I'll just give you one more data point. A figure that really I loved blew me away in the Cullen Commission, 1.2 billion, 2014, large or suspicious cash transactions, all connected to the Vancouver model. Cullen says so himself in his report, 1.2 billion. Again, as this uh, new FinTrack report suggests, Almost all of that money would be connected to real estate, but I think you can put a good multiplier of 10 on that 1.2 billion in BC government casinos and say same networks, same underground banking, 10 billion suspicious into real estate in Vancouver in one year. So having said all of that in this FinTrack report, because FinTrack, the financial reporting agency in in Canada, is the one who's supposed to at least oversee this or at least, I suppose, investigate it some way. But going back many years, I've always thought that FinTrack was pretty much a toothless tiger in terms of any kind of enforcement. I mean, is enforcement in their, even in their mandate or do they simply put out numbers and, you know, shocking bits of data hoping that someone up the line are you listening, Prime Minister, will actually take action and tighten things up? Look, I've sat down directly with people at the highest level in FinTrack. They're very smart people. They remind me of CSIS. They know too much. They know everything. Can they do anything about it? As you indicate in your in your preamble, it would have to come from the Prime Minister's office or cross-party political will to give FinTrack the power as its uh, relevant you know, counterpart agency in Australia has enforcement capacity. FinTrack does not. We're hitting on a theme here, John. CSIS knows everything. It's like the CIA. It knows a lot. But can it do any more than approach these uh, co-opted or corrupted or willfully blind or maybe unwittingly influenced politicians and do anything but say, hey, be careful out there? <laughs> As I've reported, no, CSIS cannot. Same with FinTrack. I think it's good that this public report, which I've unpacked and analyzed, is now pointing at a high level to Canadians and essentially saying, hey, we have communities in Toronto and Vancouver where a lot of much even the majority of the money going into real estate, we don't really know where it's originating, but we're starting to have a really bad idea about where it's coming from. Of course, FinTrack and the RCMP uh, need to be able to work together, I believe, with CSIS and get some enforcement going. And John, I'll tell you why. Here's another little something that I haven't quite unpacked in reporting yet, but I can say confidently, if you focus on the people at the highest levels responsible for this underground banking into Canadian cities, you will at the very same time be focusing on 
primary suspects in the election interference story. Amazing. I'll underline that with an exclamation point. Just, just completely amazing that we have a system that allows this to happen and with no teeth that they don't have the people, they don't have the resources, they don't have the budgets to be able to take this on. And so, the, you know, the name of your book, your bestseller, Willful Blindness, continues to this day. And uh, I think it's an absolute disgrace and an absolute tragedy. I want to shift gears here for a second. I want to talk about you and the work that you do, because the work you did on the casino money laundering story was first class, and you won many awards and lots of acclaim and, and all of that. Your work, now that you've created the Bureau, continues to rely on sources of information that you obviously can't reveal because these sources are in a situation where they could be fired, they could be harmed in some way, they could be taken to court, God only knows. So I guess my question is, because you rely on, on sources, because you rely on documents that you have been given access to, how can people trust that what Sam Cooper is saying is the truth, that you are not sitting in a back room somewhere making this all up and creating this out of some fantasy, that you have talked to the people behind the scenes, you've talked to sources, and I'm not going to ask you about them because I don't want to know, but just talk about that because you do get some pushback I see on social media. Well, you know, name the sources, name the name this, name that. It's It surely can't be as easy as that. Yeah, no, that's a great question and a fair question. And I'll take the last week's story about the Chinese Communist Party full-scale systematic media influence operations in Kenya as a good example. So I uh, got access to four independent national security records. That in itself, you know, people can debate uh, whether I should be able to review those documents or not. But what happens before that? Over 10 years ago, I had made access to information requests when I started to get interested in Vancouver about uh, PRC influence, about why uh, Richard Fadden would have come out in 2010 and said, we have a lot of concerns about, you know, some Canadian politicians. So I did my due diligence. Richard Fadden being the former head of CSIS or was the head of CSIS at that time? Right. He was the former head of CSIS. And we, if we can unpack this for a minute, he got his hand slapped for essentially coming out because CSIS doesn't have the, the legal teeth to do anything and saying, hey, politicians, we're a bit worried about you. He got absolutely hammered by what I'll just call an establishment in Ottawa that, you know, he was being some of it was racist or, you know, unfair what he was saying. As we now know, it, it was all true, but not to get off topic. I've done my work. I did a tips, access to information, using the law to find out what were the documents underlying what he was saying. Uh, what came back, again, didn't have many concrete revelations, but it had a lot of information that added to my research. And throughout the years, I've picked up either through access to information law or through quote unquote leaked documents a fuller picture. I would say a very full picture of what CSIS knows, of what RCMP knows what they can't do, what they can do. And then, so it's like building a puzzle. This is uh, documents that I can get through various means, 
some by using access to information law, confirm other documents, uh, fill in the blanks of, uh, you know, pieces of information I get. I can talk to people that may give me access to information off the record, and I can ask them, who else can I talk to? So this brings us to the media influence story. Victor Ho, I found, was cited anonymously in this very fresh October 2022 CSIS record. What do I do? Do I just take the document and run with it? No, I track down this person and I run the intelligence in the document by him saying, would you agree with this? Would you agree with this? Would you agree with this? And if I can recall his quotes, you know, to my question, is the CCP, you know, do you believe they're using media to support candidates? That's the case exactly, he says. The CCP weaponizes the media to gain election intervention. So these are methods I learned of verification, you know, through years of sitting in courts, listening to very intelligent judges and lawyers, way back and forth information about how facts are assessed or thrown out. So we could talk for a long time, but to the people that are asking, you know, why should we trust an unnamed source? I'll add this, besides looking for all these different points of information and seeing, do they fit together? Do they have enough weight from all these different sources of information to report something shocking? When I think they do, that's good. But beyond that, when someone that I give whistleblower protection in my editorial judgment, because I believe there's a public interest law supporting it, I do my own assessment. What are their motivations? Are they credible? You know, why do they want this information to come out? And I can say, I'm never going to claim that I'm perfect, but I can tell anyone that wants to know my methods that for me to take information from an official or former official that can't be named, I need to understand why they can't be named. Do they face serious risks that they should be afforded anonymous status? I weigh that and I judge them as a person. I judge their information before saying, yes, okay, I'm going to quote you or use your information. One more thing. So in terms of judging Hong Kong Canadian or, or Chinese Canadian community sources, it's come up over the years. Some people said, can you please not use my name? I have family in Hong Kong or China that I fear for. They could be from the community. They could just be working in any old job or they could be a journalist. And if I assess that they or their family could face risks, then I will, because I'm as expert at, at, on this file now as any journalist in Canada, I'll say that, yes, in this case, uh, I think it's right that you not be named. And John, I'll add this. My report on CCP Influence Media said that one of the methods to control media involves threats against journalists. I uh know directly about chinese language journalists that have been threatened and live in fear i know personally because i'm not going to expand on it too much but uh, with my trusted uh, host here i'll say that people have asked me over the years you're doing some cutting edge work have you faced threats yes i have i can't say too much about it i take precautions there are important things going on but Threats against journalists in Canada is real, and it should not be happening the way it's happening. I appreciate that uh, very much. Let's leave it there for this week because, <laughs> because my gosh, there's a, there's a lot to sift through on this podcast, I have to say. Take care of yourself, and uh, we'll do this again in a week or so, uh, or whenever you, whenever you ring the secret bell and the Scooper Cooper sign goes off and, uh, and I get a hold of you. <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll be able to turn it around in a on a dime. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Bureau podcast. To read more of Sam Cooper's groundbreaking independent investigative journalism, subscribe at thebureau.news. To find out more about the Bureau podcast, visit bureau.news or my website, johnmccomb.com. That's John with no H. We'll catch up with you next time. Until then, take care and thanks for listening.